thank you uh, for taking some time to chat with us. We are both uh, big fans and um, we're just really happy to be, to be chatting with you. Yeah, that's nice, man. I, I appreciate it. It's, it's yeah. great to be here doing this. We'll give a little introduction to Howard. I started recording uh, just a minute before he got into the Zoom room, but we are joined right now by Howard Weiner, the author of 10 books, including Deadology, Volumes 1 and 2, Dylan and the Grateful Dead, Positively Garcia, Reflections of the JGB, Volume 1, and most recently, Europe 72 Revisited, 50th Anniversary of the Grateful Dead's Legendary Tour. Howard is also an author of literary fiction, his latest novel, COVID Blues, having come out just a few weeks ago. You can follow Howard on Twitter at HowardWiner11, that's HowardWiner11, or visit his website, tangledupintunes.com, for links to all of his books, his blog, and also his phenomenal YouTube page where you can get some great dead licks. <laughs> so Howard, I guess the, the natural starting point is like the prologue of the Europe 72 book kind of goes through your history with the Grateful Dead. And so I'm curious, Dave and I have both read it, but some of our listeners surely haven't. Would you kind of tell us a little bit about your, your history, your background with the dead as a, as a deadhead and then as a writer? Sure. Hey, thanks for your, uh, for the nice introduction. I appreciate that. I know it's a lot of books to go through. But, uh, <laughs> hey, so um, hey, for me, it all started kind of with Europe 72. I'm at a hockey game. The date was January 24th, 1981 at the NASA Coliseum. Mike Bossy, who recently passed away just a couple of days ago, um, scored 50 goals in the first 50 games of the season. It was the most thrilling like sporting event I'd ever seen. But on the ride home, my friend pressed the tape, the tape in, and it was Europe 72. And I heard Cumberland Blues, and I, I was just blown away. I, I, I was always trying to figure out why people got into the Grateful Dead. I understood the popular songs. But, man, when I heard that Cumberland, it was, it was so rocking. But, yet it was bluegrass. It was... Uh, you know, like out music I wasn't experienced with. I heard the blues with It Hurts Me Too. And then uh, You Win Again, Jerry singing that beautiful uh, Hank Williams number. And each song was like opening up a new chapter for me. And I was like, damn, this band is, uh, they're different. They, they go in areas where other rock bands don't, you know, so they kind of had their own genre. I found it very appealing right away. And after that day, I went to a store, bought all the albums, and I went through the progression that everybody goes through. You start getting the tapes. You start going to a few shows and then it's all, then your life as you knew it is over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair enough. Yeah. I'm sure that, that is a very familiar tale. Maybe not the Nassau Coliseum aspect, but the rest yeah. <laughs> sound very familiar to a lot of our listeners. So your first show you said was in March of 81, I think at the garden. And then you went to more than 150 shows after that. Was that all from like 81 all the way through the end in 95? Or did you stop at a certain point? Yeah, it was pretty much, I'd say 81. I went very heavy, 81 through 87. Okay. Then I, I drifted a little bit. I started getting into Bob Dylan. And then I, I felt as the 90s progressed, obviously Jerry's health wasn't as great. And um, I didn't love it as much as I had in the early years. So I, I taped it off a little bit. I, I went to shows. But the very heavy years were for me were 81 to 87 as far as following them. But the amazing thing with uh, you know digital, internet, is now I'm into them more than ever. I, I couldn't have imagined that I, I'd get into them more than I did when I was back in the day. But just having the access to all the, the shows and the great recordings and interacting with people online, you know, it's, um, it's arguably, I could say I'm into them more than ever. I'm not, obviously can't see them, but it's, I mean, having, having access to all this is incredible. So uh, part of my writing the books is an appreciation for having all the great music available. Yeah. 
There's a great anecdote. I don't want to step too much on your book because again, I would just encourage everyone who's listening to go pick it up. Again, tangledupintunes.com. You can find a link to the Europe 72 book, but in the prologue, you're talking about the era, I guess it would have been right around the turn of the century when the kind of like downloads became widely available online. It made me laugh out loud, your description of what it was like for you when that kind of first came to be. Was that kind of the beginning of the renaissance for you? Once you could access all of the recordings online, you kind of went back as deeply or as you said, more deeply than you were in the 80s? Yeah, definitely. I think I, I called it a downloading orgy. <laughs> it was, um, yeah, no, it, it was crazy. I had a friend who uh, turned me on to a computer. He's like, hey, uh, there's this site where you could download shows. And uh, in those back in those days, it took a day or two to download a show. And it was like the big old computers. But it, it was so fresh and exciting, man. And um, that totally got me back into it. Then he would show me lists of what was available. I was like, my God, I never had that on tape. And now I ha- I'm going to have it on CD. So it, it, it totally changed my life. I went out, I, you know, I bought like tons of the, uh, what was it? was the bit Fuji CDs, I guess, were the best, the best buy. And yep. that was, I had, was mailing with people all over the world on different sites. And eventually I got almost, uh, I'd say 90% of the dead in Garcia band uh, on CD. Wow. And when, wow. When did you- wouldn't you know it 10 years later, it's all at the tap of the finger. You don't need to uh, to, da- to download it and burn it to CD, but hey, it was great gathering it. In fact, one time, since we're just on the topic of that, my uh, postman was like, you know, he said, he said to me, this was after this, the age of terrorism and everything. It's like, by the way, what are in these packages? Because I was getting like these mailers from people, you know, sharing the different shows and stuff. And I was like, hey, man, it's all good. Just Grateful Dead music. <laughs> That's too Maybe funny. a couple stickers, a couple stickers in there, you know, but... <laughs> Man. Add it to the FBI's most wanted list for just mailing out some dead material. <laughs> hey, luckily, it turns out my, my postman was pretty cool. He was an usher at MSG, which came in handy one day when I went to see uh, the further at MSG. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's wow. not bad. That is also like such a great uh, New York City story of like everyone has like a couple <laughs> hustles. You know, you, yeah. you go yeah. to the garden and you see him there too. Are there any, whether it's a show or a tour, like moments in your time following the dead specifically seeing them a lot on tour that stand out as like peaks for you, as far as when you, when you were seeing them live a lot. Sure. First, I would just say my uh, Philadelphia spectrum show, April 6, 1982. That that was like the first time I took a trip to Philadelphia. It was a blizzard. And um, you know, I get there, they open up with cold rain second set they played every song like if i made a list of songs that i wanted they did exactly what i wanted they did shakedown they did terrapin they did morning dew they did sugar mag and that's the only time in dead history they played those four songs in one set wow so and i was screaming and yelling the whole time i was like yep yeah, this is for me and you it's like almost like a sports thing like you feel like your presence there impacted what they played or something you know and i think most people have been through that and uh it de- definitely draws you back. Uh, but to get to a great tour from those years, I think um, October 83 was the one where I was just completely blown away. Night after night, everything was so good. And then it started in Greensboro, Shakedown Samson opener. It was incredible. Then that was the infamous St. Stephen show was the October 11th. Um, we didn't believe they were going to play it, but they, they actually played it. It blew us away. The next night, Help on the Way, Slipknot Franklin's the best version I've ever heard. Wow. And um, I love that version so much. They played Revolution that night for the first time as the encore. Two nights later, they're in Hartford playing this, the best Scarlet Fire I've ever heard. Uh, that's the one that's on Dick's Picks Volume 6. 
And then uh, three nights later, we're at Lake Placid. I need a miracle. We're up in the uh, where the, the U.S. Olympic team had just won a couple of years back. Yep. And uh, they've opened with Sugary, and obviously they played I Need a Miracle and Deal. It was another great show. So that tour, they just you know everything they did was incredible. It was uh, Jerry really dug in. He was he was playing with all his heart. There was no uh, easy way out. So everything was a long jam that tour, and it was a pretty incredible tour. You have a crazy road trip story from that tour, or in general about the day. <laughs> I probably do. I went from Lake Placid, but I don't remember. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that, but uh, not not from that tour because that, that that was more local. But I'm thinking of one like uh, Summer of '85, which was another great tour. We went to Alpine Alpine Valley. That's Alpine Valley. That's making a journey going from New York to Alpine yeah. Valley. Uh, that that was so much fun. But on the way, I got pulled over five times. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, no rest, no drugs. Different. One time was speeding, another time was this, and it's, I'm making up stuff to, with the cops. I'm like, hey, uh, I had to use the bathroom. I popped Pepto Bismol right here on the front seat. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't believe the amount of times I got pulled over, but it, it drained me of all my money and most of the guys who were in the car with me. So we really had to like scrap that tour. In fact, that is all bootleg. My bootleg tapes just I sold them for what the tapes were worth. You know, like the cassette tapes themselves. I knew, knowing I'd get them back but just to get some money to get by for the hotel and food. But five times before we hit that first show, we got pulled over even for a drink and a beer on the way in. As I was driving in, they had the oh. binoculars, the binoculars in Alpine Valley. And, uh, and then they got me for that. And I was like, I give up. <laughs> you know, I just put my hands up. I was like, yeah, test me, test me. Why don't you arrest me? <laughs> it was like, but hey, but it was worth it. Those yeah. shows that tour, man, it was uh, that, that was the 20th uh, anniversary tour. And it was a great tour. We actually, the episode that we just recorded that's coming out next week is about the show from Cincinnati, from the Riverbend Music Center, from that tour. Beautiful show. That was great. Yeah, tremendous. Yeah, that was another one. <laughs> now you got me in that, in that moment where I was at the shows. Um, I go Samson, open the second set, and behind, uh, yeah. behind the band, they, they, unrolled, they, they unrolled the banner of the 20th mm-hmm. century thing. It was, it was so cool. They're playing Touch of Grey, and, um, or, or it was Ico. It was Ico they were playing. Uh-huh. And behind the the uh the, the stage was like a steamboat just uh, you know going and going on by it was the coolest thing and That's uh so cool. that it was 100 degrees that day sun all day everybody was sunburned but uh <laughs> another one of those days where you just you love to go back and do it again you know yeah absolutely i've actually it's funny i've heard that alpine is like the worst venue from a police presence standpoint of like any venue in the country so i guess i'm not super shocked that they were they had the binoculars out and were really trying to catch people that night that sucks though <laughs> Yeah, I, I was there three times. That was the only time I had trouble. But yeah, it seems like they were, you know, trying to make the money uh, when the deadheads are coming through. Not looking maliciously to mess with people, but just to take their money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which I get. Which it's I get. Shakedown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was it like growing up where you did in the country, as far as like the opportunity to get on the bus? Did you have a lot of people around you who were heads growing up? Yeah, yeah. It was pretty crazy. Uh, Orange is right next to Rockland. That that's so I was uh, Rockland County. Okay. Um, I grew up in Nanuet. It, it really it was it was a breeding ground. It was crazy. It was, it was so easy. Once my be- my best friend was a huge. Um, we, we both loved like classic rock, and he went away to sleepaway camp. He came back, and, and all of a sudden Garcia was God. And so it took me about a month to figure it out. But you know, once once I had that moment, I went to Rockland Community College. I couldn't believe how many deadheads there were. It was you know everybody's wearing dead shirts and. 
you know, you, if you wear a dead shirt, people coming up to you on campus, it's, you know, not unlike anything today. It was really the perfect time because I think it was 1981. I, th I think the nice thing about that was 1977 was just four years away. And the legend of Cornell and all those great shows they played in, uh, in colleges in New York, um, it just built up. They, they, were, they were almost brilliant. I don't know if they if it was by accident or not, but they played all these shows in the middle of New York State at college campuses that built the most fervent and loyal fan base, which they were building upon already. But um, by, by that time, it was, you know, the, the dead was so beloved and it was a great time to because I mean, I mean, the Grateful Dead, they didn't have studio albums like in the early 80s. They had nothing for studio albums or commercial input, but they kept getting bigger and bigger astronomically. And it was because they just they they were great marketers, even though I don't think that was ever their intent. But they they marketed it right. They built the most loyal, loyal fan base and they just kept building upon it. And the fact that they never came out with an album just didn't matter. You know, no, nothing could stop them. Dave, your theory about um, that you talked about last time about people when they're like 15 to 18 years old and going to see a dead show and that becoming like a cementing moment. Yeah, like that in those formative years, capitalizing on those shows. I, yeah, yeah. If you would express that to Howard and see how it strikes him, I'd be very curious to hear what he thinks about it because I, I thought that that made a lot of sense. Sure. Yeah, and uh, the theory is basically, you know, you go to a a dead show when you're anywhere from like 15 to 20, and this is most likely the the first concert of this type that you've seen, and for some people, maybe the first concert, the first live music act you've seen and it just you know it's you get exposed to the peak as your as like your first show and so that resonates with you and that like helps form both your your taste in music but also your love for the dead going forward do you agree do you disagree what what are your thoughts oh yeah definitely the uh the great the grateful dead shows were opening up like a whole new world like to you know, there's the, the music world where there's the, the phony stage acts and the pink foil, but they were all great. I'm not that downplaying on it, but this was a, a different a different world they were opening up. And I, I think a, a couple other things, the Grateful Dead movie was doing a lot of reruns at that time. And you would go to the movies, watch the Grateful Dead movie at the midnight movie matinees. And it was like, Jesus Christ, I can't wait to be a part of this. It's like, you know, it, it's like latching on, latching on to a beautiful period in, in American history. And the, and this is where I think the John Lennon assassination came in. Uh, you know, he died. It was at the end of 1980, he got murdered. And, um, you know, it just music kind of went in a different direction in the early 80s. And the Grateful Dead were like the, the they, they were the new, you know, I, I guess they took over for the Beatles and some, and the, and as far as cool, the cool underground kind of music to go to, even though the Beatles definitely weren't on the ground. But this, it was something to like hang on to the 70s and 60s. It's like we're we're part of this. We're not we're not moving forward with punk music, and we're moving into this whole world, which is amazing, and other people don't know. And it's it was kind of like you know it was like a major fight club, or something, <laughs> but a, a major peace club. No no fighting, but it was it was just something extremely cool to be into at that time. Yeah, and just 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 for you guys, like the exactly, way the fight club right? is. Yeah, and, and the and the tapes were everything was tailor made for for the audience, which is which was a beautiful thing. Yeah. There's a, there's a quote in your book among many that I really loved that um, you, I'm going to read the quote directly. Motion is essential to maximizing the art of listening to the Grateful Dead. So that really struck me. I totally agree with it, although I never would have thought of that uh, myself. Um, so do you have like a method for choosing the, when you're listening to the Grateful Dead, 
do you have a a method for choosing what you're going to listen to depending on the type of movement in the book you talk about listening to them when you're driving or when you're exercising going for a walk things like that what, what what's your method yeah yeah definitely if, if i if i need to listen to a longer piece it's going to be a walk where you know i'm kind of a you know time out of mind but mm-hmm. driving to work i'll pick a perfect half hour thing this morning i listened to the Scarlet Fire from the Philly Civic Center, 42084. We're taping this on 420, which is appropriate. Yep. And um, yeah, I happen to be second row at that show. It's a perfect half hour segment. So for, for driving to work, I always try to get like a nice half hour segment. I don't like to interrupt it. So usually I'll, I'll pre-pick something out for that. And if I'm listening to like a year 72, I'll just, something where it's more open-ended, uh, but always being in motion is, is key. Going for walks, going for drives. It just, it makes a difference when, when you're just sitting there you could lose, lose concentration. I find when I'm doing something, when, I, when I'm concentrating on something, whether it's driving or being in the gym, um, it's much easier to focus on the music. It, you know, it would seem to contradict itself, but it's, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, it's true. I totally agree with you. And I actually, as a non sequitur, I listened to that same segment um, from Philly 84 because you posted it on Twitter. And so I listened to it at the gym today and was very pleased with, with the yeah. experience of listening to it. Great uh, little 30 minute clip. I think it's like 28 minutes. So if anyone yeah. wants to go back and find that, you can find it on Howard's YouTube page. Okay. So what, what, what you were saying about Europe 72 in the book, you talk about how closely you had to pay attention and obviously it comes through. I mean, the analysis that you have in there of each concert um, is, is pretty incredible. And I know that you said that you kind of at a certain point started to focus on maybe like the highlights of the first set. And then you really got deep into the set two, the big monster jams that they had in Europe 72. So were you finding ways to just move while you were listening to that? And if so, how were you taking notes to be able to go back to when you sat down to write? Yeah. Well, the, the beautiful thing with an iPhone or whatever, whatever Android phone, whatever you use is you got a note, you could tap any song you want. And, uh, and and get any song from any show, you know, Europe 72. And then there's also a little notes thing on there. Mm-hmm. So I would, as I would be hearing and thinking of things, I would just take the note. And I, and then when I go back at a later date, I'd, I'd be able to be able to write, to write about it. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. I was just wondering how you, how you tracked all that, because, you know, it's 22 shows, some, some four hours long. And, um, you know, you have such great insights and analysis of all of them it just seems like a lot to try to balance to me it, <laughs> so like, like, like when, when i'm in the gym i'm working out i'm not even there man i'm just like i got the, I got the headphones on I'm more, I'm more focused on taking the notes and listening to music and the the weight lifting or whatever i'm doing aerobics just happens you know it's uh yeah but and i, I find once again it's just the energy your, your, your body's moving heart's beating it's i guess it's like dancing it's a, it's a different form of dancing you know so it's um uh, there's something about that motion which really helps clarify things, and you, and you could, I think, you get into uh, get into it a little more. I was never a spinner back in the day, but I was I was out, I was out there jumping around playing air guitar, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, so it's interesting. It's almost like I'm sure you've heard the term flow state. It's almost like um, you can like get into that flow state by listening to the dead and then synergizing that with movement in some way. It just kind of connects. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And even the writing, too. Uh, I don't go to a quiet library and, uh, and write. I'll usually be, and people are amazed when I do this, I'll be sitting there happy hour in McGillicuddy's, my local bar in New Paltz, 
Now that I'll be typing away and you know, people, people think I'm working on stocks or something. I'm having the best time, you know, but I, I think just the, the fact that other people are moving and, and there's some music going on, I could, I need to like black that out. And that, so once again, it's, I need to have like, you know, that it helps the focus to have something else going on that I either need to push out or involve that, you know, that, that makes the whole, the whole process easier. Is that, is that the typical writing process? Go out in public, go to a bar, grab a drink and, and hammer yep. away that's my most effective, but believe it or not, but I, you know, I, I do some writing uh, yeah, at home, you know, it's, uh, otherwise I would have a serious drinking problem. If, uh, if that would, but but I, what, what I'll do is I'll I listen to the music. I take the notes. Um, and then when I'm ready to write, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. And then also I like, when I wake up in the morning, it's, I'll think about the book. I'm not actually writing, but so when, when I do hit that stage where I'm writing, I have the notes I kind of know how I want to put it in and I just go and then it's like an attack. It's like showtime. When I like actually got the computer open, I'm writing. It's not, I'm never at a loss for things to write. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I can tell cause you just on the same day released a new novel and a new nonfiction book, which is amazing to me. Were you writing those at the same time or were you writing one editing the other? How did all of that come to be? Yeah. So my, my nonfiction book, uh, COVID blues, uh, that I was inspired by the whole COVID thing. And, you know, just, I, I wanted to do like an inspirational piece of how music could conquer an invisible enemy, like, mm-hmm. like COVID-19. And it's about a band of almost famous musicians going out on the road. But what happened is I wrote this book and I was going to get into, you know, promoting it and possibly moving it on to a publisher. Then I was like, damn, I got to get to that Grateful Dead book because the 50th anniversary is coming up. If I don't put this one on pause, it was, it was all finished. Yeah. I said, I have no time. Time to, to do justice to it, you know, putting it out now. I put it on pause. I put my focus on getting the Grateful Dead book ready. And I said, why, when that's ready, I'll just put them out together. You know, wow. so, yeah, the Grateful Dead book kind of forced me into, uh, or forced my hand on that because, hey, if you're going to do 50th anniversary, you want to have it ready and ready and out there by the 50th anniversary. Yeah. Definitely helps. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, but- it's something I've never really never anyone seen doing anything like that before. So, I, I, said, I was like, hey, what the hell? I thought it was kind of cool. And I think the COVID blues book could ride, ride the tales of the Europe 72 book. While people are getting the Europe 72 book, if they enjoy that and they notice that I have this other book, um, I think it, would, it, it helps that it's with it. And, and once again, it's, a, it's, about, it's about music and the healing powers of music and all that kind of thing. So it ties in exactly with the Grateful Dead book. Yeah. I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I bought the Europe 72 book, read the prologue, laughed out loud on three different occasions and then saw that you had a, a book of fiction that came out at the same time and thought if this is the same sensibility that that's written with i gotta have that too <laughs> and so then yeah that's how the one two happened so i think that your marketing instinct is exactly right when it comes to those two um when did you start writing nonfiction? Uh, that's interesting this all came about it, it all, all spun out of getting a computer um I've, I've always liked writing most of my life but i never pursued it in college or I always had this little fantasy of writing a book. I think everyone does. That's the thing. Everybody comes up to me, you see, so, oh, you're a writer. I got a great book. I'm thinking of doing it. No one ever does it. One, <laughs> one day I, I just decided to do it. But it was inspired by um, when I got onto the internet and I started writing about the Grateful Dead. And I, like, I, would, I would get on there. It was, it was called the Morning Dew site for WBA Radio in New York. Mm-hmm. And a, a bunch of great guys. We had, we had parties and stuff. But someone would say, well, what's the best Jack Straw? And I was always like the most vociferous critic, you know, uh, you don't know what you're talking. I was, I was a little rough back then. I don't, I don't take it seriously now, but everybody's like, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. 
And I said, you know, maybe they got a point. And I, and I went back, I actually went back to college and, and I was like 40 years old at the time. I decided to go back. I screwed up college because I was seeing the dead and Dylan so much when I went there when I was younger. <laughs> but, but I guess it, it's, it's cyclical because I, you know, um, I, I didn't finish college, but I got the experience, to, the stuff to write about. And then when I went back as an adult, I'm spending my own money on college. I did great in college and, and I went on to get an MFA at the new school. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, so it, it, it was an interesting process. But once you spend some money on college and um, you're like, now I got now I got to make it work. That's why I've written all these books. You know? so, <laughs> hey, fair <laughs> enough. That's yeah. that's excellent. We we had a guest on a few weeks ago and he said that he's heard people say that you don't find the Grateful Dead's music. It finds you. And it seems like that is kind of you with like college and writing and all of that stuff. It found you later in your life. And it found you when you were ready for it and you were able to get in there and, you know, get it done. Make a career out of it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It chooses you. I, I, like I think from the last paragraph I threw in that prologue that, that you talked about, I was thinking of an almost famous scene where um, yep. the Lester Bangs guy is like, you know, music chooses you. you know, it's, it's, it's so true. It's um, it cho- chooses, chooses you guys. You know, that's why you do the podcast, you know, it's uh, something happened, you know, you, it's all a part of like, you know, it's the, the wheels turning, it can't slow down and we're, we're all caught up in it. And it, it's, it's something that, that benefits, you know, it makes, it makes us all feel better and we're spreading good, goodwill, good vibes. And yeah. so, so it's all good. And, and we're just getting back to my COVID blues book again. That, I mean, that's what it's all about, you know, how music transcends everything and it's, it could heal anything. It's, it's that, it's that powerful. It's more, to me, it's more powerful than religion, anything, politics. So, yeah. I mean, thinking about the when Dave and I were at the tour opening show for Dead and Company last August, before the Delta variant. Uh, well, I guess the Delta variant was like on the scene, but wasn't really a concern at, to the level it would become later in the fall. And I definitely felt like that experience of seeing live music again, seeing the guys on stage, they opened with Touch of Grey. It was like a, a healing moment. Like yeah. that is like a, a paradigm shifting moment for me in this whole COVID experience was going to that show. So I, yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. Pretty well. Um, do you say it was dead and company or yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they're great. My first one, my first post COVID uh, show where, you know, the, the, you could go to concerts again. I said, Hey, let me do that. Go, go to red rocks. This is the first, first time I ever got to go mm. to red rocks. So I went out to red rocks dark, for dark star orchestra. Oh, hell and, yeah. Oh, very cool. That was great. And, I, and definitely I was, when they, they started playing, it was during Ram Long Rose. I was crying like a baby. So it definitely, <laughs> it, it definitely choked me. I was like, this is what it's all about. I'm living again, you know? Yeah. God, yeah. that is so awesome. I yeah. love to hear that. Quickly about Lester Bangs. I love that at the end of the prologue. My favorite line that he has in that movie is, is I feel like Lester Banks steals the show throughout that. <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman is Lester yeah. Banks. The line when he's like, right, what do you like, the star of your school? They hate me. You'll meet them all again on their long journey to the middle. Yeah, that, uh, that's a classic movie, man. They just, uh, they, they really hit a beautiful emotional nerve on that. You know, it's. Uh, oh, yeah, perfect. Such a great movie. So talking specifically about the Europe 72 book, um, what inspired you to write such a long form and in-depth piece about this tour? Yeah, so um, the fir- first thing I had, when I had the idea for the 50th anniversary, I did a quick run. Th- well, it can't be that quick. I listened to all 22 shows, but I said, let me make sure this is book worthy, you know, not just a little blog post or something. And I, and I decided it was worthy for a couple of reasons. First, it was 
the album that, that got me into, as I've already described, got me into the Grateful Dead. And I'm sure so many dead heads have had that experience too. And then the deeper thing is how great of a tour it is. You know, um, over the years, I collected a show here, a show there, but I never took in the full. Everybody knows Europe 72 is a, one of the greatest tour. Everybody knows that, but has everybody actually listened to all 22 shows? And really, I know I hadn't, you know, so I knew some shows, like Bickershore and, and Rotterdam, there were certain shows which I just loved, but there was definitely shows in, in there that I, that I didn't know. So it was, um, I felt it was, you know, it was a great time to go back and really dig into every show. And um, the, it's, it's amazing how the shows kept getting better. You know, they went from West Germany with these four brilliant shows, which we're hitting around the West Germany point now for exactly on the 50th anniversary, if you're looking at it. And then you got Paris and they just kept getting, somehow getting better and better. And they started off great. You know, so it's like, uh, I mentioned somebody that was doing a critical analysis of, this, of the tour and they questioned the critical part. And I was like, you know, you're hundred percent right. It's just, it's just a big kiss ass tournament. You know, it's like the, the dead were that, <laughs> they were that good, man. They, you know, at that time. So even the shows that you would consider lesser shows were, were brilliant. You, you'd, you'd listen to them over and over. And it was amazing. Even though some of the set lists were a little similar, you know, even though some of the set lists were, were a little similar it never got boring. It just kept getting more interesting as the tour went along. I want to ask, because something you talk about in the book is that in those like heavy days when you were downloading and tape trading, you didn't dive into Europe 72 like as deep in those days. And you just talked about how, you know, you hadn't really listened to all 22 shows at a time. Was there a reason like, you know, knowing that this tour got you into the dead? Like, what was the reason that you didn't dive in deep during those heavy download days? Probably because Europe 72 doesn't show off the brilliance of the tour, the album itself. So like I didn't, there's not a great, there's not a greatest story on there. Greatest story on, during Europe 72 is insane. Yeah. It's, it's such a great, and then you got two souls in, in uh, communion. Oh, and there, yeah, there's, yeah. there's, you couldn't put, you, you can't capture the majesty on the, as great as Europe 72 is, uh, to me, it's the best, best that album. So, you know, I just heard some shows. I knew they were great. I knew other 72 shows were great. And there was so much to take on. It was like, I love 77. That was my first love as, as a Grateful Dead fan. So when I had everything opened up to me, I probably dug into that a little more. Then I had to dig into the shows that I saw, make sure I got all of them and you know, listen to them. So there's so much, so much accessible to us that it's, you know, um, that I never took the time to strictly dig into 72, which I, I should have done, but I didn't. Even when the, when the box set came out, I didn't get it because I had all the CDs already. I should have got it. It'd be like I wish, I wish hindsight. I wish I got it, you know. But um, so even even at that time, I was I was doing a book on the Jerry Garcia band. So when you there's just so much to tackle with the Grateful Dead, and if you throw Jerry Garcia band in there, no one person could be an expert on everything. And somehow Europe '72 was just this was the perfect timing. It was, it was almost once again by design, you know that I, that I this was the time that I went into all 22 shows consecutively and went in, listened to them three, five times each. And what a great experience it was. Yeah. So you mentioned um, Bickershaw and Rotterdam at the top were two shows that you knew and loved before you went into this deep dive listening experience. Um, are there shows that now that you've listened, you think are like, you know, the, the tops of the tour? Yeah. Definitely. I got turned on so much great stuff, but probably the one which which snuck up out of nowhere uh, and really shocked me was the first night in the Lyceum, uh, May 23rd, 72. 
for one thing, that's the show with the most songs of, mm -hmm. of any show in the tour. I think Pat, if you include reprises, Paris had a beat, but if you don't include reprises, more, diff more different songs at that show. And there's one point where there's seven out of eight Jerry tunes. Uh, they end the first set with Casey Jones. There's a dark star, Morning Dew, Comes a Time, you know, incredible stuff. There's an Uncle John's band in there. But um, one of the, my favorite segments of that, that show is uh, surprisingly going down the road, not fade away, hey, Bo Diddley, not fade away. I think by far that was that was the best not fade away going down the road uh, in Samo that tour. Uh, Jerry just goes off. And um, unfortunately, Pig kind of wasn't doing anything in the second set. Pig Benny, um, the illness started taking a rear in his head towards the end of that tour. But my God, they, they just blew, blew the roof off the Lyceum that night with that uh, uh, Hey Bo Diddley thing in the middle. And um, yeah, I, I really had no idea how great that show was. I was just blown away. Most people consider the last show, May 26th, to be uh, the, the the gold mine as far as Europe 72. And it's that's definitely up there, top five in that tour. But I actually, uh, I, would, I would give by, by the thinnest of hairs, I would give May 23rd the edge over it. Okay. So, yeah, it was definitely a surprise. Nice. Yeah. Uh, you talked about how the greatest story was just hot and shredding. What are some other songs that stand out? that either are or are not on the Europe 72 album. Yeah, I, I think they really did. Well, obviously, this is very obvious, Dark Star, another one. Uh, they couldn't put it on the album just because it was too damn long. Yeah. Which, which says something about how, how amazing and grateful they were at the time. They knew they were recording a studio album. And basically, you understand how rec they understood how records worked. They knew that Dark Star or other one's not going to make the album, but they played it for all it's worth, which means they were playing for the audience at the time. And they were playing for an audience in the future, which is pretty incredible of them. Uh, very few artists do stuff like that. In a lot of ways, what they were doing almost reminds me of like what Miles Davis was doing, just, you know, just going out there regardless of what the audience wants, just dumping so much great music on them, they you know, can't even handle it. And then uh, to mention a couple other tunes, which really struck me were the uh, pig pen tunes they revived for the last time, the Love Light. The Love Lights, it's just like, you know, just like, hammer to the pet crazy it was just they, they just nailed it so hard Garcia was jamming and uh I mean Pig Band was doing great too but it wasn't the long raps but the band was just so tight it was ridiculous and the cautions were crazy those are among the best caution cautions ever played so, and then all, all the New York all, all the Europe 72 stuff the Ramble on Roses the Tennessee Jeds you're not gonna find better versions they played them for many years they played them great but the pacing the singing the guitar it was all perfect back then yeah I, it's amazing. I, I'm with you. I had not listened to this entire tour until now, um, as you know, we're in the 50th anniversary and I'm starting to, you know, I'm listening to each one the day that it was played, which is a, a time commitment for sure. Uh, reading your book after I listened to those shows is, has been a really fulfilling experience. I feel like I get deeper into appreciating the music when I hear the show, then I read that chapter in your book, which has been great, but well, thanks. Uh, you're welcome. But the Ramble on Roses specifically, it's like, I, it almost makes me feel like I had never heard this song before. You know, it's, they're that good. It's amazing to me. It's like the way that Jerry's singing it, it sounds so heartfelt and he is just singing his ass off. And then just like the playing is so tight. And I think that with the one drummer arrangement that they had at that point, they could, there are like a lot of dramatic stops, you know, in Ramble on Rose and they can just stop on a dime with just billy on the drum set it just sounds so freaking good yeah 
So yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear you call that song out. Yeah. I mean, this was the best, best band ever assembled, you know, with Billy on drums and Pigpen was still going. So he, I mean, Pigpen uh, did justice, you know, it wouldn't be Europe 72 without him. Yeah. And, and the Ramble on Rose, Keith on that is amazing. That, that was a song that really, really like, I heard that. I was like, I'm, I went to the record store the next day. That was a song that put me over the top. And another amazing thing about Europe 72 is just Keith Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, the, if the great, they were so lucky that Donna introduced Keith to Jerry and the triad worked, they could have had, they could have invited the 50 best keyboardists in the world in for an audition. And not, not what Keith wouldn't have been invited to this audition. And none of them would have ever sounded as good. It was like somehow serendipity just, you know, landed in their lap. They, they had to find somebody to not replace pick, but somebody to move on with. And this guy was going to take them to the next level. They were not only going to move on, but they were, they were still going to step up a level. And Keith Gottschall was just the perfect choice. So good. And the the moments when you can hear both him and Pigpen, when Pigpen's on the organ and Keith is playing his his piano, I, I also love that interplay. Pig is doing some very subtle things and just filling space a little bit in the background and around what Keith's doing. But I also love that arrangement. Like a lot of those moments are really excellent too. So yeah, I mean, it's just such a peak. And um I'm I'm so glad to be to be listening to it right now. Yeah. And when Pig Pen when Pig Pen chimed in, he had all the right notes at the right time. So I mean he was a master musician. So that's obviously one of the bittersweet sweet things of this is um we didn't get to see his uh continued growth as a songwriter. I mean Two Souls in Communion is such a great song. I know. And uh, you know, it showed a maturity. Like Pig Pen he had to mature <laughs> quickly because I I mean he was facing you know mortality at that point. But uh, yeah. you know, that that's such a great song. And just think of what he might have done, you know, from a songwriting standpoint, if, if he had lived and uh, within a year, I bet he would have Garcia came out with an album, Weir came out with an album. I bet Pig Pen would have had an album with the year he would have had so many originals and such a worthwhile solo album. So I mean, yeah. he was really, he, he was kind of, his growth was at that point in Europe 72, he was making a big step. And unfortunately, it, uh, you, know, you know, we had to die, unfortunately. Yeah, very true and well said. I totally agree. I think that when I hear Two Souls in Communion, especially the one that stands out to me is the Rotterdam version. It's Great just one, like, yeah. it just rips your heart out. And you're right, it shows the maturity. And, uh, you know, a coming into his own as a songwriter that is, you know, I love other Pigpen songs, but... Um, like, you know, alligator doesn't have the same emotional resonance as uh, two souls in communion, for example. It's a jam that gets you on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. And yeah. Um, anyway, one other interesting thing about Europe 72, which I, I, I just wish they would have played hard to handle. If I, if I go back and just get one song in there, because when they stopped playing hard to handle in 71, it was off the hooks, man. Uh, uh, Jerry was like, you know, just some, some of those versions, there was one of the Fillmore West and uh, Hollywood Palladium on the Phil Zones, a famous one from August 6, 71. And uh, my favorite ones from Providence, April 21st, 71. These hard to handles are insane. They're like so hot. Garcia's going off in the bands, just building this incredible groove. And obviously, Big Ben's uh, directing the whole thing. And I, I just, when they, they, it's a song they left behind. And I just, Jesus Christ, if they would have played that in Europe 72, it would have, played, it would have been unbelievable. But uh, hey, grateful for what we have. It was, it was an amazing run for hard to handle. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have about a hundred more questions I want to ask you. I want to go into a whole tangent about the Jerry Garcia band, but we don't have time. So what I'd like to do is go into what we're going to call the lazy lightning round. 
Um, Excellent. Got some quick questions, but it's lazy lightning. You know, if you take a couple sentences, a couple paragraphs, whatever to answer it, that's a okay. Um, How about one word? <laughs> one, one, one word if you can do it. Yeah. But if, if you want to add some color, you're more than welcome to. Um, all right. So first one, do you have a favorite dead studio album? Um, I'll give you, I'll give you two. It's, it's really, I don't have one that's totally stands out, but, um, blues for all or Noxamoxa. Wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, do you have a, a favorite official live release? Yeah, so many of them on up. We're talking official Europe 72. And then the Dick's Pick series. I mean, that guy just hit it on the head, man. Yeah, volume two and volume seven, which is kind of, kind of a surprise one, the one from England, 1974. I think that has the greatest morning do that. That's kind of an underrated one. And also that I believe it's Dick's Picks 18. Um, there's a 1978. You, I think you guys recently did a podcast on that. Yeah, yeah. That one is so great. Yeah. Excellent. What is the live show that you think you've listened to the most over the years? Glens Falls, April 14th, 1982. To me, that first set, I can never get sick of it. I just, I, I love the second set too, but I, I can't believe it. I break that first set out. When I break it out, I'll listen to it 40 times, you know, and just, uh, I just did it recently because it was the 40th anniversary of the show. It's just, it's a perfect, like every, every note, even when they're finishing a song, the note, the notes that Jerry hits as they finish the song, I'm like, wow, perfect. You know, it's, so I happen to be at that show too. So great that one, uh, a lot, but there's a lot of shows that fit into that category. Fair, fair enough. Oh, actually quick side tangent while we're talking about shows that you went to, were you at the shows in Hartford in 87 after the coma? The, some of the, I was first that, yeah, I was, I was there. They were, they were great. Those shows. I, I, those are two of my favorite live shows. And, um, I think that there is something to just the energy in the crowd of being the first time you're seeing Jerry again after the coma. Can you just tell us a little bit about that show? What it yeah. felt like to be there? Those shows were great. I, I think, um, I forget if it was the first or second night, but there was a music never stopped, but they were going through the first set and, you know, Jerry's playing great and everybody's psyched and, but he, they got into this music never stopped. And I swear it's one of the best versions I've ever heard. And I'm like, the man is back. You know, it was more than, it was more than just being, everyone's cheering, everyone's excited to be back. But when they actually proved it, you know, here's the proof, you know, Garcia just went nuts on this music, never stopped. And uh, yeah, yeah, that, that was so cool. Yeah, it was great. A bunch of shows that tour are great. But for me, my real comeback tour moment was September 18th, 1987 with the Watchtower Morning Dew. That one, uh, you, you think you're in a dream. I, I, when he was playing that Morning Dew, I was, I, I hit the cement floor three times just, to, I was like, just to make sure I wasn't dreaming. You know, it was like, it was that magical. And you, you think they're going to be better than ever, that they're going to come back. They're going to, you know, look out 1977, you, you know, you could get actually get caught up in that momentum at that point, but it, it never happened like that. But the points during that comeback to her in 87, it, it was that good at certain points of it where you think, Hey, it's, it's all coming back. Yeah. The, for me in the, in the Hartford shows, the, uh, the China rider, the, the roar of the crowd during the, I wish I was a headlight on a northbound train oh, yeah. gives me chills every time I hear it. Cause the crowd just goes nuts and he's just giving the energy right back to you guys. Just amazing. What's the live show you were most excited to acquire during your heavy download days? During the heavy download days. Um, Actually, let, let me just share my my favorite one. While while we while we're at the time, it was uh, nineteen the Dylan Dead shows. Um, during during that summer tour, get, getting that was was like it was like a, not, seeing Dylan and the Dead. I'm a huge Dylan fan. I had just gotten into him at the time. Really, I went overboard with it. 
And knowing after that show that I was going to get the tape, that I was going to call my friend, and and the, and the tape would be mine the next day. I, I you know, like I would have I would have went home with them that night and just you know three o'clock in the morning and done the dubbing right then. So, so yeah, yeah, that, that that was incredibly exciting. But when I went, when I was like a a kid in a candy store during those digital download days. It was you know everything was it was incredibly exciting getting you know getting great quality of shows that I seen that were oh here's here's one Philadelphia Spectrum August thirtieth nineteen eighty it was I always had a terrible audience of that but it was an incredible show when I was doing the digital download I found out it came out on soundboard I was so excited to get that soundboard it might have been that one incredible Althea if you love Althea that's the best Althea great Jack Straw then the first set wow I know I know a lot of people like champion the NASA Coliseum one and that's great that's number two okay I need to break it to Al Franken and <laughs> everyone else who champions that but if you listen to Philly Spectrum 830 you'll see what I'm talking about <laughs> I can't wait okay can't wait to who's the most famous person you ever saw or ever interacted with at a dead show Jerry Garcia <laughs> I, I, I don't think I ever I ever I'm trying to try think I don't even think I've ran, I've ran to anybody famous I spill Walton but that's so obvious Right. I, I did. Mm-hmm. I did see Bill Walton at the show. That one's pretty obvious. That one wouldn't come as a surprise. But if thinking about that, I, I came and, you know, it, it kind of drew a blank for me to, um, you know, it was just, but I was so caught up in the moment. I couldn't even, I may have seen somebody and not even care. You know, Fair enough. Fair so enough. I, was so, I was so excited about what, what was happening. I was, I was very in the moment as far as what was going to happen. Like if they didn't play the songs I wanted to hear, it would be a little bit of a down, a little bit of a buzzkill. I was like that into it, that intense about what was about to happen because I knew it was going to be history. It was going to be something that would be with me, you know. For I, I didn't think this late when I'm, I'm sitting here like 40 years later, you know, <laughs> talking about it on a podcast. But I, I knew it was at least going to be with me for you know five, ten years in the future. Yeah. That's- Does it blow your mind that there are some people where their answer to that question is you because you're a published <laughs> author on the dead and. They were at the same show as you. Yeah, I would find that hard to believe, <laughs> but I, but I, but I'd be flattered. <laughs> All right. Well, now our new mission is going to be to find someone who that would be their answer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> might take a little while. <laughs> um, this is one that that Dave you added. What's your favorite pizza topping or style of pizza? Uh, I'd say sausage and broccoli wrap. Oh wow! Okay, cool. Whoa! Okay. No, no straight pepperoni or. Sausage and broccoli rob is a beautiful combination. Huh. Okay. I have to check that out. Yeah. All right. All right. Or I could, go, I could go for a nice veggie pizza. I'm always easy with, the, with like a good okay. veggie pizza. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What is the song you've examined the most closely over the years? Probably, obviously, there's a lot, but I'd say, I'd say two Scarlet Fire and Morning Dew. You know, it's like I put the napkin on, I get the fork and knife out, and, you know, <laughs> I, I listen, I listen to everyone, and I, like, I take it very serious, compare it to every version. Of, one thing I've always been able to have like a Rolodex to my mind when I hear something, I don't know how I do it, but I can compare it to other versions and I've been pretty accurate and pretty good at that. But um, Scarlet Fires, it's got that beautiful combination of the, uh, the, the rapture, the beat, you know, being able to dance to it, the, the movement of it. And there's several jams in there. You got the, the jam between verse and Scarlet. You got the long outro verse going to fire. The fire's got three jams, which at times could seem similar, but that's the creativity of Garcia, what he could do with the basic jams in the fire. So you're getting like six different jams in there, and it's a beautiful dance, you know, a whole fun thing. And I think Morning Dew is just the most, the most emotional when, when they hit that. It's, you know, for me, that's the ultimate Grateful Dead moment. 
I mean, Dark Star is incredible, but it's a long journey and at times it's mental. You know, it's not, it's not 35 minutes of like wild intensity. When they hit that morning dew jam for three or four minutes, it's wild intensity and nothing else in the world. It doesn't, doesn't matter anyway. Not, nothing else is, uh, exists. It's that jam. You're in it. Beautiful. Um, is there a song you've been listening to particularly a lot lately? Uh, greatest story because I've been in that year of 72 mode and uh, two souls in communion, but also not another fa- little favorite of mine. Music never stopped. Um, I just discovered one from Chicago, February 26, 1981. Just ridiculous. It's um, and that, that that's another song, which I think kind of gets overlooked. It's, it's got a great jam, but for me, every time, every time I hear it, it's just, there's just, just something about it. It just has that, uh, that rapture of, uh, you know, of uh, Go, going beyond what's possible in music. And I, I guess there, there's also a movie, a movie, The Music Never Stopped. Um, it was really the next movie. I'm sure you guys may have seen that. But um, just that the song's so powerful. It has that connotation, whether it's the lyrics or for me, it's always the jam. So like if you ever, if you ever want to know great music, Never Stopped, I'm all over that. I'm always looking for those. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. What's the venue you wish you could have seen the dead play at, but you've never seen it play? Yeah, I didn't see the dead there, but I finally... Uh, fulfill that bucket listing red rocks yeah i'd always imagine seeing them out there and then i, I saw them in ventura california but i guess some other gigs in california like the, the greek theater and um i, I wish i would have had a chance to really get out west you know yeah. I, I did for one for a pair of ventura shows. but yeah really any gig, any gig out in california but uh red rocks really would have been amazing to see the dead there yeah Red Rocks yeah. is a great venue. I've only been once, but my wife and I are going in September. I'm pumped to go see it again. Yeah. Such a and it, it, it's so nice and relaxed. And you know, and yeah, the whole thing, it's like when, when you when you when you pull in and then when you go to the top, you're in a different atmosphere. It's like a diff- different weather conditions at the top of the venue <laughs> than <the> bottom. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite band that you've never written about? Probably. Well, I mean, the Beatles is a very easy answer, you know, <laughs> but um, Miles Davis, that's the one uh, I'd, I'd love to write about, like some of his great bands from the 70s with, with the Fusion, with uh, Jack DeJanet, Dave Holland and, and those guys. Uh, I love those bands so much. I would love to write about that. And also like uh, kind of like a sneaky one, Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, cool. Because a lot of a lot of people haven't written about it. And I just always found their, their music so amazing. Then also the fact that he just disappeared from the scene. Yeah, uh, that that always interests me how how guys have these runs of genius, and then kind of just dis- somehow just disappear. They can never do it again. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Not not everybody could be the Grateful Dead or Bob Dylan. <laughs> right, that's very true. So my last question is: as I understand it, your first show was March 9th, nineteen eighty one, at Madison Square Garden. Is that right? Correct. Okay, unbelievable show. I listened to it today after I. Reminded myself that it was your first one. You've got a China rider into Samson that absolutely cooks. Then a, a sequence I have never heard of before, which is estimated into Uncle John's band drums, space, and then the other one. It's like the, and then into Stella Blue is the Jerry Ballad. This set list, I, I mean, it's a great show. When we talk about it on this show, would you come back on and do a, a little interview with us again oh. to talk about the show? Yeah. If you don't invite me, I'm showing up at your place <laughs> and busting in. Okay. I, I'd love to do that. It's I'm, I'm so high on that show. And the next night, if you do that show, you probably should do the next night. Cause the next night has the same type of treats on it. Just like ridiculous versions. So interesting. And since you mentioned that one, the, uh, 
the first set of that, you got the, the great feel like a stranger and incredible Althea. Yep. The way Jerry t- tuned his guitar and the way the way the whole band approached everything and it's just so unique. That should be a Dave's picks, a Dick's picks, or some kind of Howard's picks if they ever uh, unleash me on the archive. You know, well, that's what we're doing, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I was listening to it today, I went to Dead Disc and was like, "This has to have been released at some point. This show is that good." And I was very surprised that it has not yeah. been because it's this incredible. show is tremendous. And one of the, one of the things that ties into the day from that show, I saw us to meet at Uncle John's. It's my first show. By the way, my first show, I didn't know how great it was because. I, I still had to learn the language a little bit, like really understand what Live Dead's about. It was a little out of my comfort zone, um, but I took care of that in the next show. But um, the estimated Uncle John's, I, I went 22 shows. My first 22 shows, I didn't see an eyes of the world. Wow. I, I, I caught estimated Uncle John's. I caught estimated He's Gone. I caught estimated Space. If, if they played estimated eyes, I wasn't there for some reason. My first one <laughs> was on this date in history in Providence, April 20th, 1983. Wow. My 22nd show. My When they were playing Estimate, I was like, tonight's the night. Tonight's the night. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then, if, then every Estimate after that for the rest of my life, I put eyes. But, <laughs> but it was incredibly feeling, thrilling the first time. Well, Howard, I think that's a perfect note to end on. That day in 1983, you were a New Yorker invading New England and coming home victorious, <laughs> having seen Eyes of the World. Tonight, we hope that your Nets do the same at the TD Garden in Boston. Perfect. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for taking some time with us, man. It was great speaking with you, and I uh, hope we'll talk to you again soon. Hey, it's a pleasure. What you guys do, do is great, so thanks very much. And I'm coming back for the darn shows. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, thanks, Howard. Have a good one, man. All right, take thank care. you. Thank you. All right, Dave. So that was the interview with Howard. Great guy. A lot of fun. A lot of fun to talk to and to hear all those stories. Yeah. I mean, just it was so kind of him to, first of all, agree to talk with us. He didn't know us. We just randomly reached out on Twitter and asked (laughs) if he would talk, you know? And so uh, I think it just shows the spirit of this community that Howard is someone who's published 10 books and, um, random people reached out on Twitter with like a hundred <laughs> followers and said, Hey, do you want to talk dead with us? And he was like, yep, absolutely. So thank you again to Howard. We had a great time and I hope that you guys enjoyed listening to it. Dave, any uh, big takeaways that you had from, from our chat? The two big things for me was we've got some episodes to talk about from MSG. And I loved his quote when he's talking about his theme of his uh, fiction book, COVID blues and kind of his theme about the Grateful Dead as a whole, that music can conquer an invisible enemy. I just love that idea that like whatever you're going through, whatever your inner demons are, you know, the, the Grateful Dead's music, but whatever music you like can help conquer those. I just thought that that theme was really, really cool. Totally agree. Yeah, we've got some, we've got our work cut out for us, man. Between the show, the shows that Zach Cropper gave us in the interview with him and then the shows that Howard just mentioned, I mean, we've got like, we're set for like the next five years. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a, we have a lot of Grateful Dead music to listen to. And so I think that we should just sign off and get to listening. Let's do it. Let's do our homework. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we will bid you good night.
That's it. That's it. You got it.